Have you heard you can listen to your favorite gripping investigations ad-free? Good news! With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash ad-free true crime. That's amazon.com slash ad-free true crime to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This call is being recorded. To accept the call, press 3. John Gate. If I found a body in your trunk, do I assume that you kidnapped him, tortured him, raped him, and threw him in the trunk? Welcome to Killer's Vault. I'm Elizabeth Rome. Join Eric Roberts and me as we take you inside the brutal minds of the most prolific serial killers the world has ever known. Through never-before-seen or heard letters and phone calls between Rob Webb and Richie and Barbara Dickstein, these personal accounts of murder and mayhem will be unleashed for the first time as we open the Killer's Vault. John Wayne Gacy, Killer Clown. John Wayne Gacy was one of America's most heinous and prolific serial killers. He was a sexual sadist who tortured, sodomized, raped, and murdered 33 boys and men between the ages of 15 and 22 years old, burying 29 of his victims in the crawl space underneath his Norwood Park, Illinois home. Gacy's furious bloodlust began in 1972. While hiding in plain sight, he stalked, kidnapped, brutalized, and murdered his victims with a cold efficiency, choosing his victims well. Runaways, drifters, male hustlers, and drug abusers gave Gacy a sense of impunity. No one would miss these troubled young men. Gacy's arrogance and the disdain he had for his neighbors as well as his own family was particularly evident once his crimes were revealed. Gacy tortured, sodomized, raped, murdered, and then buried 29 of his 33 victims in his home, many of them committed while his wife and two stepdaughters lived in the home. His subsequent actions of burying those victims in the home's crawl space are further evidence of his hatred and contempt for all of humanity. But how did John Wayne Gacy become a sexual sadist and a serial killer? Was he born or was he made? Richie Dickstein began corresponding with Gacy beginning in 1991 and continued to do so until Gacy's execution in 1994. Richie and his wife Barbara were fascinated by serial killers and turned that fascination into an obsessive game. Who could get closer to America's most notorious serial killers? Over the years, the Dicksteins have amassed hundreds of letters and many hours of intimate recorded phone conversations. It is within these letters and phone conversations that we get an inside look at one of America's most heinous and prolific serial killers, the killer clown, John Wayne Gacy. John Wayne Gacy became sexually obsessed with Richie Dickstein. The majority of his letters are filled with sexual innuendo and crude fantasy. This letter from April 1993 is an example of Gacy's twisted, almost adolescent sexual appetite. It also reveals the tone of all future correspondences, which was set by Gacy at the very inception of this relationship. Yeah, I like to tease and joke, sexually and otherwise. Some people can't take it. I had a stroke in 84 and it affected my whole right side. Leg, arm, hand, eye. Lucky for me, the hand still does what I want, going up and down at night, if you know what I mean. So... You like sausage, huh? Well, I have seven inches fat and juicy. If you like a nice cut mushroom head, we can play school. I'm sure being a weightlifter, you've had to pose at some point. That's what I'd like to see, so I can see you with that nice basket when I'm getting a nut. You mean you never had any experiments with boys when you were young? You said that you had BJ, Jerkoffs, and Fucks, and that's all been female, and you're not able to go down on yourself. Well, maybe the closest you can come to that is to lean up against a wall, 
with your feet up in the air, bent over your head, and then pull it off aiming for your mouth. I mean, I assume you tried your own and rolled it around in your mouth. Pure protein, baby. Hell, if you stop and think about it, your first experience was with the male as you started stroking it first, right? It was the most important and exciting day of John Wayne Gacy's life. It was the day he was finally going to free himself from his alcoholic father's cruel and sadistic grip. It was his 18th birthday. John was going to Las Vegas, and there he would become the man that his vile, abusive father, John Stanley Gacy, the drunk, had pronounced with such hatred he'd never become. John's eyes moved around his tiny makeshift bedroom, a claustrophobic rectangle that had always reminded him of a crypt or a secluded cemetery. It was dreary, windowless and drafty behind its true intent, the basement receptacle for coal deliveries. However, John and the rest of his family knew exactly why he had been thrown into that petroleum-smelling pit for the past seven years. The incident occurred just after his 11th birthday, when John's sister had innocently walked into the kitchen pantry to prepare for dinner. Once there, she encountered something that had shocked her to tears. It was a moment that would change her life forever. She found her brother completely naked, covered in cooking lard from the waist down, slightly hunched over, masturbating, while probing himself with a carrot. When she screamed in horror, he simply acknowledged his mortified sister with a twisted smile and continued on with the task of pleasuring himself. When John's father heard the disturbing news, rather than having a father-son conversation, perhaps discussing his son's choice of location for alone time, he instead beat him with a broomstick so viciously it rendered him unconscious. While John was still out cold, his father stormed into his bedroom, tore it apart, throwing all of his belongings into an unfinished cement basement. John had to sleep on the cold, damp concrete floor for a month. It was only after he was hospitalized for pneumonia and his mother's continued pleas that his father haphazardly converted the soot-covered coal bin into a bedroom. John smiled knowing his days and nights in the crypt were over. In all of his correspondences with Richie Dickstein, Gacy never admits to his guilt. However, Gacy fully admitted his participation in all of the murders at the time of his arrest. It seems clear that his lust and addiction for killing allowed him to create his own logic when corresponding with Richie. In his mind, having 29 bodies buried in his own home did not prove his complicity or guilt. In this phone call, John Wayne Gacy's delusional state of mind is apparent. He is heard defending his own indefensible crimes using a horrific analogy. I get news for you. The team of attorneys that I've got are, are working around the clock. Around the clock, they have to. That's right. And do and you actually think if I was guilty, any of these people would even give a damn? Yeah, but I was reading, I was reading this thing. And what, um, did you read the New Yorker article? Yeah. There's more positive stuff in that article than you know. Yeah, between that article and some other article I read, um, all they do is focus on bodies buried in your house and shit like that. Well, we cannot deny that that's where they were buried, but who put them there is the question. Anybody could have, right? Well, look, if I found a body in your trunk, do I assume, if the body is nude in your trunk, do I assume that you kidnapped them, tortured them, raped them, and threw them in the trunk? Suppose you borrowed your car out and somebody else used the car. You see, you still get the blame. Suppose you let somebody use your apartment, bring a girl over there, and he gets carried away and kills her in the sex act. Guess who gets blamed for that one? You do, because you it's your apartment. Hmm. The other guy can say, no, I didn't bring anybody there. After packing his one piece of Samsonite luggage, 18-year-old John laid out his one black suit and starched white shirt on his tiny bed 
He then studied his naked body in the dusty mirror. In spite of the 40 pounds of excess weight he knew he had to lose, the weight his father and so many others had teased and bullied him about his entire life, John absolutely loved the image of his own body. But more important, he worshipped the image of the male body. This was something he had known most of his life, and it was a secret he intended to keep. Gacy knew he couldn't reveal his homoerotic, sometimes murderous fantasies to anyone in the uptight Midwest community he lived in. But Las Vegas was entirely different. In Vegas, John would unburden himself by giving in to all of his increasingly bizarre and delicious fantasies. John never acknowledged that other person his father referred to him as. The dumb and stupid sissy girl. The mama's boy. The fat little queer. That was the image his bloated drunken father had created. And it was a composite of the man that he was. His scumbag father. John knew better. He was none of those things because John saw the truth in that mirror. John Wayne Gacy was a fucking god. In a letter from May 1993, it's clear that Richie Dickstein has been playing into Gacy's perversions to continue their relationship. Loved your letter. Sounds like you've been busy standing or laying up against the wall with your feet over your head, catching all you can, huh? Where are some more photos of your weightlifting poses? What are you not wanting me to see? Your buns? I'd slip something in your back door when beating it and watch you not go wild and shoot it all the way to your face. In this phone call, Gacy explains his masturbating techniques while trying to create a mental image of Richie pleasuring himself. You like to be dominated, huh? What kind of toy do you play with? I got a dildo. It's not really that big. It's about six inches. Yeah? But Have you taken it all away? No. Why? I don't know. If you grease it up and slide it in there with baby oil or something like that. Hell, I, I, I talked to one guy. He says he uses carrots and bananas and all kinds of shit. Hell, I've had something up, up mine as far as 12 inches, so I know damn well you can go up that far. And then what's the feeling you get, the fantasy you get? As if somebody was standing behind you pumping you at the same time you're whacking it. So when was the la last time you took it off? When was the last time I jerked off? Mm -hmm. Last night, I guess. And swallowed it off? No, that was, I think I did the head-to-head -head two days ago. Well, when you don't do that and you're just laying in bed doing it, where does it go? I don't like really shooting it up my stomach that way. Have you ever, when you're just about ready to come, put a glass over it and catch it in the glass? No, to drink it, you mean? Mm -hmm. You told me you've done that, though, right? Yeah. You can whack it off in the soup, spaghetti, anything. But a weird position. I could get into almost doing it right now. Oh, set the phone down and then get into the position. Why don't we do it together tomorrow night? You could get into that together or no? Yeah, I'm playing with it now. Your cock is hard now? A little bit. You're playing with it? I have my hand on it, yeah. <laughs> I love you, John. I'd love to feed it to you. Have you done on all fours and come up behind you and drive it into you? Yes. Oh, yeah. So when the hell are you going to get come out? How many hours should it take me to get out there? We could eat together, hang out, talk, do everything, huh? Yeah. All the visiting rooms are separate. They're, they're private. What do you mean? It would just be me and you? Mm-hmm. The only thing that blows my mind a little is that handcuff thing. That's kind of fucked up. Well, it won't it won't interfere, I know that. I'm still, like, super concerned about you. Well, I'm obsessed with you for the last week, I told you. Non-stop. That's all I could think about. I pray for you on a regular fucking basis so anything is fucking possible, pal. I know it. Just get your butt out here, though. I do want to see you. When are you going to mail the pictures off? Gacy's first night in Las Vegas was spent in his car. Early the next morning, he poured over the want ads in search of his first big job. He began to panic when he realized the type of job he was searching for, a junior executive position at a casino or a bank, were for college graduates with some experience, neither of which Gacy had. And then he read an ad that spoke to him. Janitor at the Palm Mortuary Services was the perfect job for Gacy. 
and it had one incredible perk. He was allowed to sleep behind the embalming facility for free, which would allow him to save money for his trip home and the business school he knew he had to attend if he wanted to make something of himself and not appear once again like a failure to his father. Each night at 9 p.m., Paul Mortuary was closed for business. The only person remaining in the facility was John Wayne Gacy, and he was in charge. When the owner of the mortuary hired Gacy, he explained that his chores would keep him busy for at least seven hours. That first night alone, Gacy finished in two hours, something he wasn't going to tell the owner. It was between the hours of 11 p.m. and 7 a.m. Gacy loved the most. He was alone and free to explore the entire facility. Gacy spent a lot of his time in the mortician's quarters, which is where he learned embalming procedures. He would spend hours in that room, polishing steel slabs and mortician's tools, also learning how to completely change his appearance by applying putty and makeup. Gacy's favorite location in the mortuary was the reposing rooms, which is where he became acquainted with the dead. Their corpses were often dressed in beautiful outfits, clothing Gacy had never been privy to. Gacy wanted to know how cashmere or brushed camel hair felt on his body, so he began changing out of his work clothing and into the death outfits of the fresh corpses. At times, he wore expensive suits. Other times, he wore the gowns and dresses of the deceased female clientele. Dressed in the outfits of the dead, Gacy would roam the facility, adopting the character of the deceased person whose clothing he was now wearing. Gacy would talk for hours with the corpses, divulging his secrets as well as his desires. He also very much enjoyed and sometimes desired these corpses. One night, Gacy came upon a young man of about 16 years old in the repository. He was dressed in a beautifully tailored black suit, a white shirt, and a cornflower blue tie. The young man's thick, inky black hair was perfectly coiffed, and his full pink lips were pursed, almost pouty. He knew the attraction was mutual because he was a god. He felt an uncontrollable need to hold and kiss him. He backed away slowly. His mouth was dry. His breathing was fast, labored. His entire body began to shake. Anticipation. He was so close to all that beauty. Beauty that was rightfully his. Gacy began to disrobe, fumbling at first, and when he was finally naked, he climbed into the coffin. He began pressing his body firmly against the hollow corpse of this most beautiful creature. Gacy's heart was pounding, knowing that this was a sin, but he couldn't help himself. He couldn't stop the monster. He pushed hard into the frail body, kissing it, devouring its face with his lips and tongue. He pulled it in closer tighter, gyrating, and then he began to shake wildly, and within moments, he was unable to hold out any longer. Gacy screamed. He was primal, like a jackal moments away from tearing out the throat of his prey, and then he ejaculated. It was the most significant explosion of feelings Gacy had ever experienced the caustic black hatred of his father, the revulsion and contempt he had for anyone who would ever cause him pain and degradation. It was in that moment between the euphoric explosion of release and the immediate slowing of his heartbeat when John Wayne Gacy saw his entire life play out in front of him. Gacy now understood what his life's work would be angry sex and revenge.
Dr. Catherine Ramsland is a world-renowned expert on serial killers, a professor of forensic psychology and criminal justice. She has five graduate degrees, three of which are forensic psychology, clinical psychology, and criminal justice. She's the author of How to Catch a Killer, Confession of a Serial Killer, and 66 other books, in addition to hundreds of articles and short stories. It's wonderful to have you on the show, Dr. Ramsland. How did Gacy's relationship with his father shape his life? Gacy had a fairly bad relationship with his father because his father was a kind of man who really didn't accept his son. He belittled him. Sometimes he would just hit him for no particular reason. So Gacy grew up not quite figuring out what were the right moves and the wrong moves around this man that he admired, and he wanted to please him. On the other hand, his mother, Gacy's mother, would take his side, try to protect him, which just made things worse because then Gacy's father would dismiss him as a mama's boy, um, you know, weak, and probably never going to be a man. And so that, even though Gacy appreciated his mother taking his side, in a way, it was also somebody to be resentful of because she was just making things worse. Another factor to discuss, because he was incredibly graphic when it came to his sexuality, obviously, from his murder victims to the way that he wrote in the Killer's Vault letters. As far as um, rituals and imprints, what role did Gacy's masturbation rituals play in his life as a serial killer? In one of the letters, he describes a ritual he that he wanted his the recipient of this letter to do and describe back to him was to put his legs up against the wall and masturbate where he would come into his mouth and and swallow it and he would talk about that as being a very pleasurable experience and he's he's think he uses the fantasy of it to as if there's another man there as if there's somebody with him doing this so he he can use his fantasy life with this particular ritual to seem as if he is involved in a sexual relationship with somebody. So, you know, Gacy, and also I, I know that he had asked one person who survived to pretend to be dead. So that tells us something about a certain attraction that Gacy had as well. Gacy became a janitor at a mortuary when he moved to Las Vegas. What influence on his later behavior might his exposure to those bodies at that time had on him? Do you know much about his time at that moment when he was in Las Vegas at the mortuary? He would have seen things like how you plug up a body to keep it from leaking in the various orifices, which he would later do to his murder victims. Um, he would have become comfortable around bodies and handling them, lifting them, manipulating them when he was alone with the body, I have no doubt that he touched them, especially male bodies, um, and, and explored and did whatever he wanted to do because he had an unresisting person there who wasn't going to tell on him. We definitely know his comfort level with bodies was certainly established at the mortuary, even for the short period of time that he was there. And, and he understood a lot about what happens to a dead body in various stages of decomposition. So the stage is kind of set for knowing how to plan for some of these things. After three months of work at the mortuary, Gacy had saved enough money to return home. The long drive home from Las Vegas gave John Wayne Gacy time to assess his past, but also plan his future. Though he didn't score the job of a lifetime that would have once and for all proven to his father how important he really was, the trip did provide him with a blueprint that would eventually get him there. Gacy needed to first learn about business, and then he'd need practical experience. After that, he would hide in plain sight to begin his life's mission. A wife, children, a house, hell, maybe get involved in some charities. Better still, politics. John Wayne Gacy graduated from Northwestern Business College. He then went to work as a sales clerk at the Nunbush Shoe Company. While there, he perfected his gifts of manipulation and persuasion. 
developing an incredible knack of fast-talking everyone and anyone in and out of whatever he wished. Polishing his tools for future annihilation, and before long, he was the shoe company's top salesman. Gacy was quickly promoted manager, and he was subsequently transferred to a large, more prestigious store. Gacy's uncanny attention to detail, along with his ability to inspire salesmen twice his age, impressed upper management as well as the many female employees he worked with. Marilyn Myers was one of those employees, and just like everyone who had ever met Gacy, she too was easily pulled into his web of lies and deceit. Gacy saw the perfect beard in Marilyn. She was raised Roman Catholic, like Gacy, and she came from a strong and supportive family, unlike Gacy. But it was Marilyn's father who sealed the deal for him. Once Gacy learned of the Iowa-Kentucky Fried Chicken franchises that he owned, and that he was considered a pillar of his community, he made certain Marilyn Myers was to become the next iteration of his plan. After a short courtship, John Wayne Gacy and Marilyn Myers were married. Marilyn's father was ecstatic, and he saw immense potential in his ambitious, God-fearing son-in-law. To show his appreciation and his belief in the young businessman, he offered Gacy three Kentucky Fried Chicken franchises to manage with the option to buy once he learned the business. And if that wasn't enough, he gave the newlyweds a home. Everyone loved John Wayne Gacy. And why not? They were only human. Outwardly, 1964 Waterloo appeared to be a wholesome slice of Americana. It was a welcoming place where people knew each other by their first names, and they didn't lock their doors at night. Gacy keyed into something entirely different. He felt an undercurrent of sexuality which exhilarated him, and it was a behavior he was intent on exploiting. But first, he had to establish himself within the community. To do this, he married his father-in-law's upstanding family man image. He joined the local JC, the Democratic Political Organization. He gave an inordinate amount of time to church activities, and he created his alter ego. Pogo the Clown. Within two years, Gacy was well on his way to fulfilling his dark mission. He had become Waterloo's JC Man of the Year. He was lauded by the community for his charitable work at hospitals entertaining sick children as Pogo the Clown. His businesses were successful, and he was a father. However, after his always critical father approved of this other being, a character Gacy had so carefully designed, Instead of feeling a sense of relief, his dark side took over. The need for revenge overwhelmed him. Rob Webb is a known expert on true crime with an emphasis on serial killers. Rob began corresponding with serial killers in 1990 after first communicating with John Wayne Gacy. Since then, he has amassed thousands of letters and artwork from well over 300 serial killers from all over the world. Rob has appeared on numerous documentaries and in periodicals discussing his work, his collection, and his long and trusting friendships with some of the most heinous serial killers of the 20th century. Rob Webb is also a contributor to Killer's Vault, and we're thrilled to have him. Can you describe Gacy's Pogo the Clown alter ego? He loved being the center of attention. He loved it. He loved going to the hospitals. He said he loved doing the things for sick kids. He was you know, running around, the kids are asking him for candy, and then one kid comes up to him, and he's like, can I have some candy? And John asked him, well, it's like, did I give you some candy? And the kid goes, no. And John knows he just gave him some candy. So he leans over, and he grabs the kid's cheek, and as hard as he can, he pinches his cheek. It just grabs it, and just pinches it as hard as he can, just so hard to where the kid starts to shriek. And he tells him, get away from me, you little greedy motherfucker. And then he jumps off and dances away, going, ha ha, ha ha, Pogo the Clown. And he's like, that's when he, then he used the line, well, see, clowns can get away with murder. The sexual undercurrent Gacy knew existed occurred during weekend house parties, and Gacy was thrilled to learn that his fellow JC colleagues enjoyed casual drug use as well as wife swapping. 
which he insisted his wife partake in. Soon he was providing the party drugs, which he bought from one of the many boys he employed. But playing the heterosexual dad ran its course, and behind this he focused his attention on one of his employees, 15-year-old Donald Vecchi, the quiet, somewhat delicate son of a fellow JC. In this letter dated June 10th, 1993, Gacy writes with graphic detail about a Waterloo threesome he experienced. I was with this one married woman checking out a job to do on their place, and we ended up in bed. I kept wondering where her husband was. She said not to worry about it as he knew she messed around. She was 27 and I was 31 at the time, so when she went down on me in her bedroom, I didn't stop her. Then we got undressed, jumped into bed, and while I was pumping her and sucking both of her breasts, she was making an unusual amount of noise. And just as I was about to shoot, out of the closet came her husband with his underwear down to below his knees with his six inches in hand beating off while I kept putting it into her. Just as I got a nut, she looked over at him and he dropped his boner into her mouth. She sucked him the rest of the way. I told him to lick his cum off me and like a lamb, he did. So I stood up, told him to crawl between her legs and eat her with his butt in the air. I took my wet hard cock, took hold of his hips and drove it into his backside, pumping him until I unloaded again. Donald Vecchi elicited the same intense hunger that Gacy experienced with the beautiful dead boy in Las Vegas. Gacy knew that Vecchi's feelings, just like the beautiful boy in Las Vegas, were reciprocal. Tonight he was wearing the same thin trousers he always wore when he drove Vecchi home. Gacy wanted the boy to see his erection, how excited he made him. Gacy had scoped out the spot nights before bringing the boy there the deserted parking lot of a long-ago shuttered cemetery, the perfect location for what he had planned. The night was overcast, making it almost impossible to see inside the abandoned parking lot, even if someone was looking, which they weren't. The car could not be seen. He backed the car up to the base of the massive oak tree, which stood between a dilapidated caretaker shack and the outer gates of the cemetery. He was now completely hidden. Vecchi was his. Gacy pulled the joint from his pocket, handing it to Vecchi. Gacy had to control his immediate impulse, which was to savagely pounce on the boy. He reached under the seat, pulling out a bottle of Jack Daniels. He made a show of taking a big pull from it before passing it to Vecchi. Gacy knew he had to maintain and control the monster while seizing the glorious moment. In a near state of rage and passion, he wrapped his thick hand and meaty fingers tightly around the back of the boy's smallish head, completely palming it. He began squeezing it like a tennis ball. How easily it would be to crush this little head and how much fun it would be to do it while feeding him. His other hand tore at his gabardine slacks, now exposing his erection. His hand then slid down to Vecchi's throat and he began squeezing. When he grasped for air, Gacy drove his head and open mouth onto his erection. Vecchi tried to pull away, but Gacy only drove down harder, making it impossible for him to breathe. When Vecchi stopped resisting, Gacy released the pressure. But where was the fun in that? Which only enraged the monster. Gacy quickly pulled a length of rope from the glove box. He then tied Vecchi's hands behind his back. When they were secured tightly, he got out of the car. Gacy moved stealthily around the front of the car, his narrow gray eyes fixed on Vecchi. They were like glowing pools of mercury in the dark. He ripped Vecchi out of the car, driving him to his knees, and then he continued to sodomize the boy for two hours. It may have been embarrassment or fear of Gacy's retribution, but Donald Vecchi didn't report the sodomy for four months. When he did, Gacy was placed under arrest. 
During questioning, Gacy at first alleged that Donald Vecchi's father, who had opposed his candidacy for president of J.C. Chapter, was framing him. To further this allegation, he offered to take a lie detector test. Gacy failed. Gacy was then given a psychological evaluation which stated, The most striking aspect of the test result is the patient's total denial of responsibility for everything that has happened to him. He can produce an alibi for everything. He presents himself as a victim of circumstances and blames other people who are out to get him. The patient attempts to assure a sympathetic response by depicting himself as being at the mercy of a hostile environment. Gacy then admits to having a sexual encounter with Donald Vecchi, but insists the boy offered his sexual services to him and that he acted out of curiosity. No one bought it. John Wayne Gacy went to trial where he was convicted of sodomy and sentenced to 10 years at the Amamosa State Penitentiary. On the day Gacy was sentenced, Marilyn Myers Gacy petitioned for divorce, requesting possession of the couple's home, property, sole custody of their two children, and subsequent alimony payments. The court ruled in her favor. Gacy never saw his wife or two children again. While incarcerated, Gacy's father died from cirrhosis of the liver. When he was informed of his father's passing, Gacy collapsed to the floor in an uncontrollable fit of tears. In a rare display of emotion, Gacy writes about his parents' deaths in this letter dated November 7th, 1993. The month of December depresses me as both my parents died in that month and, to boot, the same month I was arrested. My dad died on Christmas Day, 1969, mom December 11th, 1989, and my arrest came on December 22nd. So you can see nothing to get excited about. By the way, you said you're going to find more photos of you. I just want to study some to see if I could find one that would make a nice painting of you. Of course, hell you know, I would like to see the beefcake too. Be good at what you do. And keep your mouth open so you don't miss a drop. Gacy served 18 months in prison for the brutal sexual assault of Donald Vecchi. Now people are going to pay for the crimes against John Wayne Gacy. With financial assistance from his mother, Gacy bought the now infamous murder house at 8213 West Summerdale Avenue in Norwood Park, Illinois, a suburb just outside of Chicago. Wasting no time, Gacy began cruising gay bars in the Greyhound bus terminal for young men, whom he would bring to his home for his ever-increasing rough sexual liaisons, and then Gacy gets lucky again. In this letter from April 1993, Gacy opens up about his first homosexual experience. My first experience was at 22 with a male. This guy was 30. We were out drinking, and he told me he had a 100% chance of getting a nut while I had 50% chance, so I asked him to explain. One thing led to another, and I passed out. I awoke, felt something warm and wet down below. Looking down, he was on it, and it felt great. So I just laid back with my eyes closed and let him do it. He had one wet finger in my back door moving in and out, and I pumped a hot, creamy load in his mouth, then he licked it clean. Hey, if you ever went in the back door with your girlfriend, it's no different than with a male. Only you can reach around and have a handle to pull on. In 1971, a young man filed a police report stating that Gacy had picked him up at the Greyhound bus terminal, drove him to his house, and attempted to force the youth into sex. Like Donald Vecchi, this boy, for whatever reason, failed to appear in court and the case was dismissed. This complaint would have violated the conditions of Gacy's parole, sending him back to prison for the eight years he owed to the state. Had the police performed a thorough background check on him, which would have revealed his past sexual assault. The Iowa Board of Parole never learned of the incident, and eight months later, 
Gacy was released from parole and his previous criminal convictions in Iowa were sealed. John Wayne Gacy was now certain of his omnipotent godlike powers. He was now free to evolve that worry of old prison time. It was a frigid night in January as Gacy slowly cruised the bus terminal. He knew he'd find a lost soul or a stranded runaway looking for a warm place to crash for that cold evening. 16-year-old Timothy Jack McCoy had to wait nine hours for the bus that would take him on the last leg of his trip to Omaha, Nebraska. He was cold, tired, and above all else, Timothy Jack McCoy was a trusting young man. With the promise of a meal, a warm place to crash, and a ride back to the bus terminal in the morning, McCoy went with a nice, older, recently divorced family man. Gacy's basement was dark, as if lit by candlelight, which must have immediately raised Timothy McCoy's level of suspicion regarding the older man. Gacy casually opened up his liquor cabinet and began pouring drinks. Gacy's mind was racing. He didn't want conversation. He just wanted to get to it without all the bullshit formalities. After handing McCoy the drink, Gacy leaned in for a kiss. And when the boy moved away from him quickly, insisting to be taken back to the bus terminal immediately, the nice older gentleman's face turned sinister. Gacy charged and cornered the boy. McCoy, now panicking, kicked high and hard, connecting with Gacy's solar plexus, knocking him back momentarily. McCoy raced to the basement door, which he found locked and keyless. He then scurried into an open closet where he found an open tool chest, carpet knife. McCoy spun on Gacy, now slicing and stabbing at him in the near dark, but to no avail. For a much bigger man, he was much more agile than he looked. The hair on McCoy's neck stood up when he noticed Gacy's face. It was his eyes. They seemed to be glittering, lit from within. And though he now seemed calm, his face took on a bestial, predatory look, like a vampire revealing its fangs just before moving in for the kiss. Gacy charged, grabbing the boy's arm. He seized hold of his thin wrist, bending back hard until he ripped the knife out of his hand. Gacy didn't stab him. He wanted to enjoy this before ripping out his intestines. He lifted the boy off the ground, throwing him hard into a wardrobe. Gacy then grabbed him by the back of his hair and slamming him against the wall enough time to completely take the fight out of the boy. Lying in a prone position, Gacy straddled the helpless boy and began stabbing and slashing in his chest and stomach over and over again. When Gacy finally rolled off the dead body below him, there was warm, sticky blood everywhere. Still out of breath, Gacy looked at the boy's face. Cold. Pale. Dead. He ripped off his pants and began sodomizing the corpse until he ejected. Gacy later said that after he had that orgasm, it felt as though the back of his head had exploded. The feeling is what he'd been searching for, that incredible mind-numbing moment of release. Nothing he had ever experienced felt this good. Gacy understood that death was the ultimate thrill for him, and he had to replicate this moment over and over. John Wayne Gacy's life work had begun. Timothy McCoy was not a clean kill, which aggravated the hell out of a detail-oriented, somewhat of a neat freak John Wayne Gacy. The little hustler ruined his carpet, bleeding all over it, and then, if it wasn't enough, he began leaking fluids from his nose and mouth. Gacy also hadn't thought about where he was going to dispose of the body. And then he was hit with the stroke of genius. He'd bury his boys underneath his home in a crawl space. Gacy knew he needed another beard or a woman by his side to continue the charade he was trying to purport as a heterosexual man. He began dating a childhood friend, Carol Hoff, a divorced mother of two girls. 
After a short courtship, the two were married, and Carol and her two daughters moved into Gacy's slaughter home. Some of his victims were employees he hired to work at his construction company. Others were pickups at bars or the bus station. 14-year-old Samuel Stapleton and 15-year-old Randall Raffitt were both innocently walking home from school when Gacy snatched them off of the street. At times, Gacy's hunger was so voracious he'd kill twice in one night. None of these boys and young men died without suffering, and many of them were read scripture from the Bible as Gacy simultaneously raped and murdered them. Gacy no longer fed the monster inside of him. He had co-opted the voices inside of his head as well as the frenzied impulses that accompanied them. John Wayne Gacy was now in complete control. He was the monster. Carol Hoff found gay pornographic magazines and films around the house, none of which were hidden very well. It was as if Gacy wanted her to know he was leading a double life, and when she confronted her husband about the material, he told her he was bisexual. After having sex with Carol Hoff on Valentine's Day 1976, Gacy told her that would be the last time he would ever have sex with her. Shortly thereafter, Carol Hoff divorced Gacy. He now had the house to himself. John Wayne Gacy would have continued murdering under the radar and with complete anonymity had it not been for his last kill, Robert Peist. Robert Peist was everything John Wayne Gacy had coveted in life. He was a tall, extremely handsome high school athlete and honor student. The moment Gacy saw him, he became obsessed, unable to control his sexual, murderous rage. And the last impulsive act would inevitably lead the police directly to his door. Gacy's insidious campaign finally came to an end after murdering the 15-year-old boy after a chance encounter at the drugstore where he worked. Gacy had to have him the moment he laid eyes on him. He was so taken by the boy's presence that he lost control, not caring that there were two witnesses who saw him talking with the boy, essentially making Gacy the last person on earth who saw him before his disappearance. Gacy coerced Robert Pice into his car to discuss a summer job. The moment the young man sat in that car, it was all over. Gacy was too cunning, and Robert Pice had no reason not to trust the affable, jolly contractor. Gacy bragged to him about how big his business was and insisted Pice come to his home office, where he could meet some of the other young workers in his employ, as well as see the operation. Gacy led Pice into his home. Barely making it through the basement threshold, Gacy sprung into attack. He wrapped a rope around Pice's neck that had been fashioned like a tourniquet. As Gacy pulled Pice down, he simultaneously jammed a piece of wood through its knot and he began twisting, making it impossible for Pice to breathe. By this point, Gacy had perfected the rope trick, as he liked to call it. Knowing that Pice wasn't dead yet, he was only out cold. Pice was the type of boy he needed to spend time with so he dragged him upstairs and he slowly went to work on his victim. Gacy had the boy handcuffed and naked on the bathroom floor. He slapped him several times in the face to wake him up. And when he came to, Gacy immersed the boy's head in a bathtub filled with ice cold water. As Gacy raped the boy while holding his head under water, he began reading passages of the Bible to him. When Pi stopped flailing, Gacy pulled his head out of the water and on several occasions had to revive the boy to keep him from dying. And then he'd do it all over again. Gacy raped and tortured Robert Peist for the better part of three hours. At one point during the rape, Gacy actually had the gall and contempt to pick up a ringing telephone. During that call, Gacy had his final orgasm and when he hung the phone up, he realized there was nothing left to take from his victim. Robert Pice had died. Gacy dragged the lifeless body into his bedroom, shoved it underneath his bed, masturbated one more time, 
and then he fell into a peaceful slumber. When Gacy woke up at 2 a.m. that evening, he panicked. He realized his crawl space was completely full of bodies. There was nowhere to bury his prized kill. Gacy carried Robert Pike's naked body out into the cold and placed him in the trunk of his car. There had recently been a snowstorm in Chicago and the streets were covered in ice, but Gacy had a new client he was meeting in the morning and he needed a good night's sleep. Fuck the icy road conditions. I'm John Wayne Gacy. As Gacy raced to the overpass above the Des Plaines River, he hit a patch of ice, slamming his car into a tree. He saw the damage to his vehicle and knew he had to be towed. He took it all in stride, first things first. He opened the trunk of his car, pulling Pice's naked body up and into a fireman's carry. After securing him to his shoulder, he slammed the car trunk shut. Gacy wasn't worried that anyone was watching because he was a god and he was invisible. Gacy walked along the muddy, wet embankment of the river, carrying Pice's body over his shoulder. When he reached the top of the bridge, Gacy took one last look at the boy's beautiful face, and after a moment of reflection, he hoisted the body over the bridge railing. Without waiting for the body to hit the water, Gacy yawned and then ambled slowly back to his car. So tell us, Rob, how would you define your relationship with Gacy? We were good pen pals, solid pen pals, but I wouldn't say that I would consider him as, as a friend. Like, I didn't acquire the same feelings for him because I know he was predatory. Was there anything about him when you met him that was surprising to you, that was unexpected? Immediately, when it, I, I, I will tell you what struck me was his stature uh, when you walk into the room, how pleasant he was, how articulate he was, how prepared he was how he wanted to make sure he was still in charge. I went, to, I went into my hypotheses with him on why did you commit these murders. And he sat there and just listened to me riveted. He paid attention to every word I said and did not respond to anything until after I was done. And you could feel the air pressuring in the room as I'm talking and it was building. So I talked to him about the Kentucky Fried Chicken the chickens that he was in charge of, the incident with the JCs that put him in prison in Waterloo the first time, the losing his marriage, his children, everything he worked so hard for because he couldn't control his sexual urges. And I said, that's what put you in prison for the first time. And we all know that's what happened. And he enjoyed the killing. And then the killing became more important than the sex. It became more important than the fantasy of the picking them up and having sex with young boys. It became the killing and the torture, and each one began more and more and more elaborate. And he didn't, after we got through talking, he didn't say a word. He looked at the table, did not say a word, could not respond because I nailed it on the head, in my opinion. And at that point, you could see him trying to catch his breath, like he had to recover from everything I told him. He gets up and immediately walks behind me, puts both hands on my shoulders, right on my neck, leans down and whispers in my ear, and he goes, if we decide to riot or take control of the prison, you are ours to do what we decide to do, something according to that line. He really thrived on reaction. That was one of his turn-ons, was the reaction he would get while he tortured. And so I knew not to feed into that, because if I did, the visit was going to be a disaster. A witness revealed to the police that John Wayne Gacy had been talking to Robert Peast at the pharmacy, indicating that he was the last person to see the boy alive. When the police brought Gacy in to discuss the conversation he had with Robert Peast, he appeared calm and indifferent to their questions. His responses seemed thoughtless and unrehearsed. He was a master at telling lies. Gacy convinced the investigators that he had nothing to do with the boy's disappearance, and he was free to go. However, one detective saw through Gacy's calm and easy demeanor, deciding to run a thorough background check on him. Once Gacy's Iowa jail time was revealed, the police secured a search warrant for his home. Upon entering the home, the seasoned detectives were assaulted by the unmistakable pungent odor. Almost in single file, the detectives followed the stench to the home's crawl space, which lay adjacent to the basement. Two detectives got on their hands and knees and began crawling into the tomb. 
what they found stunned and sickened them. 29 bodies were discovered in all forms of decay. The most recent victims remained intact and the older corpses were either mummified or had completely devolved into skeletal remains. After confessing to 34 murders, John Wayne Gacy received the death penalty. He told investigators he had to dump five of his victims in the Des Plaines River because he no longer had available crawl space. In this phone call, Gacy's deluded mind is apparent as he tries to convince Dickstein of his imminent release. I mean, you don't understand the victory of, of winning that lawsuit, do you? It shows that I was telling the truth way back when they started it last October, and I'm still telling the truth. And also with stuff that's starting to break in my case, we also know that the state is now starting to worry about it. They're afraid. You gotta understand, if the public starts to get wind that what I've been saying all along is the truth, and the state has withheld it, these people are all in trouble with the, with the public. You see? If you can kill me, then you got me quiet. Why do you think they stopped me from granting interviews? Yeah, but you're days away. If they kill you, then, then it's over with. I don't know, I just... And I still believe that we will get a stay of execution because the truth has to come out. Yeah, but John, how much time is left? I, I you know, I'm going nuts. I, there was a man in Texas an hour before he was to be executed. It was reversed, and he's out on the street now. Yeah, but you said you're going to tell me, like, you know, you'll tell me, like, last minute. I mean, what the fuck is today, Wednesday? Hmm. This is going to be like a kind of a crude question, but let me ask you anyway. You told me I could ask you whatever I want. I want to know what the odds are. I would bet. I, I would bet the house that May tenth is going to come and go. You typing me a letter now? No, <laughs> I, I they've cleared out most of the stuff of myself. They took away your typewriter. Well, they took away a lot of stuff. Here's, here's somebody sent me a. Uh, let's see, oh, this is from Florida. Wait, why did they take your stuff? Procedure. And nothing the scares state, you? The state has to act as if it's on. And nothing scares you about it? No, why should I? You're a cool guy. It's like you're in the news every ten minutes. Well, I am. And when I read about it every day, it's like a part of me is in the... Miss one, and so therefore there's always a lot of attention public has been brainwashed into that stupid monster image and that's all they ever know because they've never heard the other side i need at least one hour or, or two hours on television so that the public gets to see my god this guy is human yeah but right now it'd be a lot better if you weren't that famous that's true the media has really hurt me to brainwash the public and to believe in the monster image <coughs> and and they keep they keep the public enraged and keep the public against me. Have you been eating okay? Yeah. Feeling good, feeling happy, going right along. <laughs> I'm getting tears in my eyes again. Huh? Getting tears in my eyes again. Like you're so cool and I like you so much and you've helped me such a great deal and I care for you so much and I can't describe how much I'd like to say to you right now and I'm like in another world because I just don't know where to start. But like... Sometimes I just think that you're like, how could you not like say I'm scared? First came here. That's bullshit though. That's just like because you may be going into jail. I'd be scared if I went into a jail too. Well, yeah, but the fear of being on death row scared the hell out of me. Because all I knew, all see people on death row, I knew everybody here was a killer, and they wouldn't think twice of killing you. Right, because maybe they have nothing to lose, right? That's right. Don't be scared of dying, though. I'm, who said I'm scared of dying? I'm scared that I can't get things done. They get choked up. Yeah, but uh, my my fear is hoping that I get things done in time. See, that's my my concern. Will I get everything done? Doctor, in your estimation, can you give an explanation of what you felt John Wayne Gacy's diagnosis was? He had what we call narcissistic immunity a sense that he's too special to be arrested for anything. And even if he got arrested, he'd figure a way out of it easily. If you've ever watched Gacy talk in an interview, he believes very strongly that if he controls the narrative, he controls reality. 
So even if a boy were to turn him in, he'd have a way to make sure he never had to pay for that. He insisted on taking a polygraph, et cetera, which just made things worse. But in his mind, he's thinking he's special, he's destined. However, the fact is he did go to prison for it, not for as long as he should have gone, but he then realized there are consequences to this sometimes. He again attacked several boys, again had some police encounters, and began to realize the ones who don't report me are the ones who are dead. He now knew he had to eliminate witnesses. And as long as he knew he could do that, he now knew he could do anything he wanted with them because they were never going to tell anybody once they were dead. In this letter, one of his last correspondences with Richie Dickstein, Gacy's insanity is revealed. Regardless of the fact that his execution looms in the very near future, Gacy's only interest is to satisfy his sexual needs. Gacy's frustration at his inability to manipulate Dickstein is also apparent in this letter. Some time back, you had said you were going to send me some pose or workout photos of you, either now or when you were younger. But nothing has come in at this end, so... I guess so much for keeping your word. I won't bother to ask about it again because I assumed that when you said something that you meant it. It's the same old thing. You said you're going to send me some cool photos so I have something to think about, but you never said what year, so I'm still waiting. Hey, if not, then say so. But as I said above, I'm not going to be asking again. Besides, if you're coming to visit in January, I got to be around for Big Richie. And seeing Little Richie too, right? Just six days before his execution, John Wayne Gacy calls Richard Dickstein for the very last time. Richie is upset that Gacy is so cavalier about dying. Gacy's angry that Richie never kept his word and begins to question the supposed loving relationship they've had for years. What the fuck are they going to do, electrocute you? Well, he got to first win it. God damn it, the Cubs finally won a game at home. You're nuts. I'm a diehard Cub fan. Are you? Yes. We got a victory today, they got a victory today. Six days, I'm going nuts, and you said you promised you. <laughs> what are the chances, though? I'm so fucking sorry now. I didn't come out to visit. I'm so sorry I didn't. Well, the door was always open for you. I feel like lost now. You're a part of me, you know? Yeah, but the thing of it is, is that you say one thing and then don't do it. I, I, I don't understand where you're coming from. Which Richie do I believe? I mean, you were coming out last year, you were coming out in, in uh, February, you were coming out in March. I'm still sitting here. And hopefully... Now it's getting down to their wire, we get out here. But is that my fault? I'm coming out in June. Fine. So are you going to be there? As far as I know, I am. I've been trying to get back to my sister. i got to talk to my daughters, you know. Is your sister going nuts? Hmm? Your sisters, your daughters, they're going nuts? No, they're, they're calm. They talk to me and then they're in, in a good mood. Because they don't believe it, right? No. Well, they know me. And again, it gets back to the same thing. You shall know the truth and the truth makes you free. You can lock up my body, but you can't lock up my mind. Yeah, but don't say to me then. Don't, don't let me find out then. All of a sudden, this thing goes through, and then, well, they killed your body, not your mind. Is that what I should think? <laughs> no. The thing of it is, Dad, when are you going to send the pictures? That's all in your hands. I'll send them out immediately. You keep telling me that. Immediately. Take my word one more time. All right, I'm going to tell you right now, and I'm serious. If you don't, and, and, and I don't see them, then I'll know that you were never telling the truth about anything. See, I'm not going to go hash this over with you again. No, but I'm just saying All this. All I'm saying is that if you say it, now you said you're going to put them in the mail today. Okay, fine. If you do that, fine. If you don't, don't expect me to keep coming back and coming back and giving you another chance and giving you another chance. Because then I know you're running a scam on me and you're running a game on me. And if that's what you want to do, then we really are not as close as you think we are. 
I'm not going to do it anymore, John, but let me just say this one thing. Because I don't understand why you did it to me in the beginning. Because I've always been open and honest with you, helped you every time you needed to help, been there for you. Why did you do it? See, it doesn't even make sense why you did it to me. But You do it to somebody that's fucked you around. You don't do it to people that have been good to you. I could explain it probably a little better in a letter, and I'll write it. All I want to say is just this. Just because I lied to you about it doesn't mean that I don't love you and doesn't mean that I don't have strong feelings. I didn't say and that. I didn't say it. One hasn't got nothing to do with the other. Maybe it was just a character defect. I'm not I'm not trying to rationalize it. I'm not, not trying to really rationalize it because it's bullshit and you're right and there's no way to really sugarcoat it. In other words, I, like, I'm not going to try to sugarcoat it. I fucked up and I lied. But nevertheless, I'm sorry. And it doesn't mean that I still don't love you, though. And I'm so concerned about you. All right, I gotta go. I don't want you to be scared. On May 10, 1994, John Wayne Gacy was executed by lethal injection. His final words to the public were, Kiss my ass. For additional content and to discuss these podcasts, please go to killersvault.com. The Killer's Vault podcast is based on the serial killer collection owned by Dr. David Adamovich and Lynn Wheat and collected by Richie and Barbara Dickstein. The Killer's Vault podcast is also based on the serial killer collection owned and collected by Rob Webb.